Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. We have a big show, so let's get right to it. Later, Stephen Macchio, the Grammy-winning and Oscar-nominated composer, singer, songwriter, producer of songs like Miley Cyrus's chart-topper Wrecking Ball and The Weeknd's Earned It, alongside his latest chart-topping album Tales of Solace, will join the legendary Gowan the current lead singer and keyboardist of the band Styx and hit maker of songs like Strange Animal and A Criminal Mind to talk about working in isolation. But first, we have a guest who quite literally needs no introduction, so I'll keep it short. Peter Frampton has been a professional musician since the age of 12, has played with everyone, as you're about to find out in this interview, and his album, Frampton Comes Alive, has been certified as eight times platinum. His new book, Do You Feel Like I Do? A Memoir, is available now. Here's Peter Frampton. Let's start with meeting Jimi Hendrix at age 16. Well, I had already met uh, the, the bass player of the Rolling Stones, which is um, Bill Wyman, mm-hmm. and he had taken me under his wing and showed me the, uh, the, new, uh, the, the club scene in London. And uh, so he took me up to town one day and one weekend, and there's this, the parting of the crowd and this, this guy is walking towards the stage and everyone said, come on, come on. I didn't know what was going on. And then I see this, who I now know was Jimi Hendrix, get up on the stage and took a right-handed guitar player's guitar and just, he didn't restring it. He just turned it upside down and played it left-handed. And then he came back and he wanted to meet Bill. And so I got to the tender age of probably 15 uh, 16 of, of meeting uh, of meeting Jimmy, which was great. He was a sweet man. So you're seeing one of the rock and roll legends of all time in a in a very small space. That must have made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. A- absolutely, yes. I saw Jimmy and I saw the birds there as oh, well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, you were also a childhood friend of David Bowie. You call him Dave all the way through the book, which I love. Did you recognize early on that he was destined for great things? Well, I didn't. I didn't realize what it was that I was feeling about his uh, his talent and his um, just his personality on stage. The first time I saw him was before I went to the school because my dad was his art teacher for three mm-hmm. years, four years maybe, and. Um, so uh, we went on the weekend to a, a school fete where you raise money, charity thing, to raise money for pencils and erasers. And um, so uh, I noticed that as we walked in, there was this band uh, playing on the steps of the school, the main entrance. And it was I now know it was a band called the Conrads. Mm-hmm. And, but I was transfixed by this one guy on the end playing sax. And when he wasn't playing sax... He was singing, you know, Eddie Cocker numbers, Elvis Presley numbers. And I just looked at Dad, and I'd already got the music bug, obviously, by this time. And um, and so I looked up at Dad, and I said, Dad, who is that? And he said, oh, that's Jones. He's very musical. And I said, well, Dad, I want to be him. Well, there's a great picture of you in the book 
you're eight years old, you've got a Hofner Club 60 guitar in your hand, and you already look like a rock star, the way you're holding the guitar, <laughs> doing the whole thing. Did you always know that it would be a career in music for you? Or was there a moment that you said, okay, this is working, and this is what I will spend my life doing? Um, uh, no, it, I think that um, when I actually got to play with the Conrads after David left, there was a moment that I, I, I say in the book, and I was 15 uh, at this time, 14, 15, and the lead guitarist had gone on vacation, and uh, the drummer said to me, uh, would you sit in with us for, we got like five shows in 10 days or whatever it was. So halfway through the show, um, you know, everyone's jiving, and, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and, and uh, doing the twist, or whatever it was then. <laughs> and um, so uh, in between a number, um, I'd just done a long guitar solo in a piece I must have or something, and the DJ was on another stage, and he just, from somewhere, his voice came out, and he started saying, everybody, we've got to give that kid a round of applause. <laughs> Whoever he is, he's damn good. And I froze. I did, oh, my God, he's talking about me. And I got very embarrassed. And <laughs> and then after that, I thought, wow, this might be something I could I could do for the rest of my life if they if they pick me out like this. And I'm just sitting in with this band. So that was that was that was a very early moment when I came home and told mom and dad and they went, oh, dear. When you were getting offered these gigs to play with the Conrads, and there's lots of the herd bands like that, you had to go right. home and ask your parents because you were so young that you weren't probably even legally allowed to be in some of the places you were playing in. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, when I met Jimi Hendrix, I was way underage. You're listening to my interview with Peter Frampton. His book, Do You Feel Like I Do? A Memoir, is available wherever fine books are sold. In the book, you thank Bill Wyman for, and here's the quote, for recognizing my potential before anybody else, including me. You're a great guitar player, but what do you think it was that he saw in you other than that? Well, I, I think it was it, it was the guitar playing because as soon as um, he'd taken this band, the Preachers, um, that I was in um, within that very short period, um, <laughs> he, he uh, Bill Wyman, uh, was producing the band. And uh, so, um, first of all, he couldn't believe that I was... I think he thought I was the keyboard player's son or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so when I was, he saw me pick up a guitar and plug in an amp and start to play, I think it blew him away. Well, later you heard on the radio that the Rolling Stones had you on a short list to replace Mick Taylor when he left the band. What do you think that would have been like? Would that have been a good move for you? Oh, I don't think we'd have been talking right now. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, um, you know, the Stones, I've known them all for a long time. You know, uh, Charlie and Bill, a little closer than the others, mm -hmm. uh, and Ronnie. Um, so uh, I, I don't think it, uh, it would have been a terrific uh, move for me. It would have been a great career move. But then, you know, a year after that, um, that's when Comes Alive came out. Mm -hmm. So... It was a moot point, as they say. 
You were a teen idol, both as a member of the herd and after the superstardom in 1976. How do you handle that kind of fame? You describe it beautifully in the book. And I love there's a line in the book where you say something like, I can't go to the coffee shop anymore. And that was one of the first times that you realized, like, life is now upside down for me. Yes, I think the thing that was uh, at that point um, when Comes Alive came out, I went from nobody knowing, noticing me to the elevator guy in Manhattan telling everybody what floor I was on. Right. You know, so it was, um, it was a very crazy period at, at that point. And um, it was sort of out of nowhere, you know, um, I, with the herd. Um, We'd had the same sort of um, uh, screaming girls and things like that, and uh, uh, but it wasn't to the level of this. This was guys and girls, and it was just over the top, you know. So um, it was a, a heady experience. Um, I I don't I didn't really enjoy um, that side of it feeling like they, the one place I couldn't go to, which is where I always wanted to go to, was the record store, mm -hmm. you know, to go and buy um, my the next Stones record or yeah, yeah. Zeppelin's new one or whatever. But that was the last place I could go, you know, because then I would get, uh, I mean, we even had a, I was in a car go, going to an interview or something in, in New York. I lived there for many years and, and, um, I got a flat and we had to all get out of the car. It was a limo at that point, I think. And um, uh, I just got out of the car for two seconds and it was like there was 50 people around us, you know. So it was, it was bizarre, you know, to say the least. Off the top, I mentioned that later in the show, Gowan and Stefan Macchio will join us. We're going to talk about what it's like to make music in isolation. We'll get to that in just a bit. First up, though, more Peter Frampton. In this segment, we talk about, well, frankly, what it's like to be the biggest rock star on the planet. When Frampton Comes Alive came out, everything changed for Peter Frampton. In this segment, he tells us how. I wonder how you're feeling. There's ringing in my ears. And no one to relate to, save the sea. It's a level of fame that very few people ever get to taste. Was there anyone that you could speak to about this? Did you call Mick Jagger and say, how do you handle it? What do you do? How do you keep your head screwed on right when that's happening to you? It was actually Ringo. Um, <laughs> Ringo has been my friend since I was 20 when I met him on uh, uh, Ain't That Cute uh, album mm -hmm. sessions for uh, Doris Troy, which George was producing. And um, so he was a, he, it was a bit like I was friends with uh, Bill. Ringo was the same. You know, he was just a really lovely down to earth, as he is today, mm -hmm. down to earth, funny man, you know. And he was very, very good to me. And uh, so, so I was playing the forum and he goes, uh, I don't know, last month you're playing the troubadour, now you're playing the forum. <laughs> You know, so and I said, yes. So, I, yes, I understand that, you know, and I see what you mean. I said, but what happens now? You know, and he said, well, you know, we're all different. 
every act's different, you know. So um, I don't know, you know. The one thing that I didn't have that the Beatles had, Humble Pie had, the Herd had, was three or four other guys in the band to all go, what do you think about this? Oh, no, we can't do that. Or what do you think about this? Yeah, let's do that. So it was all, I was, I didn't have the, the guys to, that were going through the same thing as me. I did have my band, but we were really not in the same universe, mm-hmm. I, unfortunately. Things were so, I was so kept apart from everybody at that point. So I just, I would have wished to have, have, uh, have had the other guys to be able to say, you know, should I do this or should I not? Um, just, you know, just in a mirror, you know, asking myself, basically, I don't think this is a good idea or this is a fabulous thing to do. I'm, I can't wait to do this. When you've done an album that is now the biggest selling record of all time, we surpassed Carol King's tapestry record of six something million. And uh, that was the scary point for me. But also being rushed into doing, uh, uh, creating something that I wasn't ready to create was, was a pain. But I thought, well, I guess that's what I have to do. Also, I wonder if those those years or that that moment of being considered a teen idol did it negatively affect your reputation as one of the generation's best guitar players do you think yes um i i say having experienced it uh, a pop star or or a teeny bopper star's career is 18 months Mm -hmm. because they grow up um (laughs) uh, the audience i mean um but a musician's career is a lifetime and that's uh that's what i am that's what I've always been. Never really wanted to sing. But when I left Humble Pie, I realized, well, if you're going to be a solo artist, you've got to sing. So so I sang everything. You skyrocket to fame, but there also have been some lean times. What do you learn from the lean times? Oh, yes. Um, I think I've learned more from my failures mm. and the lean times um, than anything else because... Um, if you think of my career from when I was, uh, when I first went uh, uh, professional, which was 16, from 16 to 26, which is now the live album mm-hmm. year, and that's 10 years of, of all this, you know, going crazy. And it was a, just a constant build from band to band to band, then to me. And um, I was sort of feeling like I was... Superman-ish, that this, well, you know, I've just got to do another record and everything will be fine, you know. And, of course, with the the incredible crash uh, uh, from the moon, I'd been to the moon and back, but now I was not just down a few rungs on the ladder, I was below ground because I had turned off my audience. You're listening uh, to my interview with Peter guys. Frampton. Mm-hmm. His book, um, Do You Feel Like I Do? Now a saw me as this is available wherever fine books are sold. Unfortunately, um, that was something that really did affect my credibility as a player. Because uh, like in 1980, uh, the beginning of the downfall, um, I came out of a gig one day and was running to the car or the bus or whatever. And somebody, a fan said, hey, man, that's great. I never knew you played guitar. <laughs> you know, I, and it was like that has always stayed with me. And, um, you know, uh, when things 
when I managed to rebuild my career, I have been incredibly careful as to never wear satin pants or take my shirt off ever again. <laughs> You've been diagnosed with uh, IBM, a progressive muscle disorder. Uh, that's also changed your life. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You, when you first get signs of it, you don't realize what you have. You just think, I was in my 60s, early 60s, and I thought, my legs are getting weaker. Well, I'm in my 60s. I'm getting old. So I didn't do anything about it. And then <clears throat> a few years later, we were on a tour, and um, I, uh, I fell on stage. And we all thought, including me, it was very funny. A beach ball, one of those giant beach balls came up on stage. I went to kick it, and I just went straight back. And, you know, we were all laughing. You know, he's fallen, and he can't get up, and all this stuff. And it was, you know, I was laughing too. Um, but then three weeks later, it happened again. And uh, it wasn't so funny that time. And that's when we had a 10-day break, um, and I went to a neurologist to find out what's going on here, you know. It's um, basically your body is attacking your own muscles, um, autoimmune, and um, it affects the arms and hands and and your legs. But obviously my, my biggest fear is um, when I won't be able to play guitar. It's affecting my playing a little bit now in my fingers, but so far, so good. It's, I'm so lucky it's a very slow-moving uh a disease for me. You have a sense of humor in the book about a lot of kind of terrible things that have happened. Is that part of your uh, makeup, part of your coping mechanism when things uh, don't go the way you hope, that, that humor is a way to uh, help you get through everything? I think so. Um, humor is, is so important, especially to find humor in yourself, mm -hmm. self-deprecation. Is, is king as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I think that um, my, my parents were very resilient. Both of them lived through the Second World War, one in the Blitz in London, my mother and my father in every major battle in Europe and Africa in the Second World War. And so they both got through it. And they were, they're both very strong, were both, both very strong characters. And I, I, I got that from them, I think. My final question is probably an impossible question, but is there a moment, a performance, anything like that, a meeting that stands out more than all the others? I think it was the time, and I always say this, it's a friend of mine that was working for George Harrison, um, uh, met me in in, in the uh, Wardour Street, which is where the Marquee Club yeah. is in London. And um, he said, do you want to come and meet uh, George? I said, what? George who? George who? He said, Harrison. I said, oh, my goodness. Really? He said, yeah, he's recording down the street. So I walked into the control room first, and there's George Harrison standing behind the console, and he just looks up and he goes, hello, Pete. <laughs> you know, and... I, as I say in the book, I thought Pete Townsend had walked in behind me. You know, it was, he, oh, he knows who I am, I guess, from Humble Pie and the Herd, I guess. I don't know. But it, it's your first Beatle meeting is 
you, you think the floor should open up and you should disappear. In this segment, we're going to meet Stefan Macchio. He's a Grammy Award winning and Oscar nominated composer, songwriter, producer. He's done songs like Miley Cyrus's chart topper Wrecking Ball, The Weeknd's Earned It, and he has an album of his own called Tales of Solace that at one point recently was the number one selling record in the world. He joins Canadian legend Gowan. He's the current lead vocalist and keyboardist of the band Styx and hitmaker of songs like Strange Animal and A Criminal Mind to talk about working on music in isolation. Hey, Richard, Welcome. how are you? Um, very well. Listen, was life under the lockdown the best or worst of times for songwriting? I've been thriving. I've, I'm very busy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think... Overall, since we were unprepared for this, um, you know, there was that initial daunting feeling of, well, so now what do I do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that hasn't been the case. It's been the opposite of that. It's, it's, I, I can't wait to get back to work so I can stop working so much. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, take it away. <laughs> um, it's a great question. Uh, first of all, touring is uh, has been thwarted a little bit. So I mean that that unfortunately has created some boundaries. And I, I'm a big believer that boundaries creates greater creativity. You know, oftentimes we say um, the freedom and we can be better artists. I I, I believe the opposite. Mm. You put four walls, uh, a frame around a painting, and all of a sudden you're forced to come up with just bigger, more concise, and more intelligent ideas. So. Um, Sadly, it took um, a virus to shut us down. But in a lot of ways, like Larry said, I've never been busier. Um, I, I, I in, a, in a very haunting way, I uh, was already ahead of the curve. I had decided I was going to release a solo piano album. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I felt like life was too complicated. And my life was way too big here in L.A. So I decided to reduce my life. And then all of a sudden, the world also decided to do the same thing in mid-March. Just everything shut down. And so now um, I'm locked into this studio and I'm just creating content more like I, I rec I'm recording sometimes north of three to four hours of piano music daily. And for I'd say for the next year and a half, I'll be putting out albums worth. Wow. Well, so it's, it's an uh, exciting time. Uh, Lawrence, uh, Styx was working yes. on new music. Uh, yeah. during all of this. Um, how does yeah. that work? Do you practice over Zoom? Do you uh, write separately? How does it work? Well, uh, similar to the, the kind of timing that, uh, that Stefan is saying, it's funny, it was almost prescient that we were, uh, it, it, it's odd, but we were, we were writing songs and halfway, halfway through recording them and kind of trying to, uh, trying to figure out how the, how the album is going to take shape eventually because you've, you've got more material than is actually necessary uh, for a record. Um, we, we when, when everything stopped, we realized, oh, no, we're, we're just getting into the fine strokes. You know, we, we had all the all the all the bed stuff done and, mm -hmm. and we're getting to get the finer strokes. Let's put it that way. And we took a, maybe about the first six weeks of trying to decide what should we do, because that that you know, that ball kept getting kicked back and forth as right. to whether we can get across the border, what the protocols were going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the agenda kept shifting. When we finally surrendered to the fact that we, we can't, I can't go to, the, to America and they, they can't come here. Um, and even if, even if we could, doesn't seem like the smartest thing to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we want to do the smartest thing. 
<laughs> Most musicians don't. But anyway, we wanted to. And uh, I wound up working remotely in a studio I have here uh, in the beaches with a fellow that I've been working with for a number of years. And uh, we did we did Zoom calls, but there's also a thing called Audio Movers, I think was the name of it. it was, it's an app they were able to use where, <laughs> incredibly, they they were sitting in a studio in Nashville. That's where the, where the uh, producer is and, and Tommy Shaw particularly. And they're able to listen on the speakers there as if I'm sitting in the in the studio, like just a few feet away. And it got so... Uh, it got so in, 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 second nature mm-hmm. by the time by the time we were done three or four days of that, and I'm recording the piano parts and, and uh, B three organ parts and some things and singing and so I'm doing all the bits that I'm that I had to fill in to finish the album. It got so second nature that <laughs> there were several points where I started to think, not unlike what Stefan's thinking, where you're you're confined by these four walls. The four walls now being the screen of the of the computer. That I would be, I began to to perceive, as I'm working on stuff, that the engineer who was sitting in the next room from me was actually, you know, in another country, just yeah. like the other two guys who were on the screen. So there's four of us on the screen, sometimes five, and I began to feel the separate where I would speak to him like this as we are conversing right now. Meanwhile, he's sitting like six feet away, right there. <laughs> right. So. You kind of adjust. You, you just adjust. You're listening to my interview with Stefan Macchio and Gowan on making music in isolation. Uh, Stefan, your album, Tales of Solace, is being called a record for our times. It was written before the pandemic, but why right. do you think it's perfect for right now? Timing is everything, and this is probably the most perfect example of a uh, perfect storm of everything kind of just colliding at the, the right moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, a year prior to COVID, I was personally feeling just tired with producing pop records, um, uh, and I just wanted to kind of come back to my my roots. If anything, COVID, I think, is forcing us to really look at ourselves, um, our relationships with families, our loved ones. Um, there are beautiful things happening, and there's a lot of challenges happening. I mean, people who can't stand each other, are, can't stand each other that much more, or are being forced to understand each other if you will so <clears throat> so to answer your question um i i really went out of my way intentionally to record and market this album prior covid as if i was one guy with two hands a broken heart uh and you know talent at the piano and just played my heart out for eight weeks and i recorded 23 hours of music and i reduced it to you know under an hour for the album and um and then all of a sudden COVID happened like mm-hmm. literally uh, and it was just it people thought that i had already recorded the, the perfect quintessential lockdown album and, and it was just music to soothe my soul it was a healing album it was very cathartic and um and it just kind of worked it's worked well with the timing of what's going on in the world right now well, I think everyone has struggled with the pandemic uh, to find an audience and to figure out how to perform for an audience. Lawrence, you've been live streaming your performances, and I think, yeah. Stefan, you've been doing it as well. Does that feel good or strange or maybe both, just in terms of performing to kind of an invisible audience rather than to a room of actual people? It, it, uh, strange and good, yeah, both, quite frankly. Um, 
I, I know Stefan's we were talking right before we came on the air. He's been doing been doing a lot of it as well. Uh, I'm actually I'm really enjoying it. I, I enjoy the. I've done a few that um, that, that are like. Uh, what they call what we call corporate shows you know mm-hmm. so it's companies that are having their convention of the year which is no longer going to be you know it's going to be as <clears throat> it's going to be over the computer and over the internet and so you know i did one about a week ago where there's i think there's 42 different people from the company and i see them all on the screen right on, on my screen and doing the full performance for them uh you know for about you know, 45 minutes, something like that. And then having a question and answer thing after, similar to what we're doing right now, and feeling a great sense of, um, I, I, you know, I have an expression that I've used for years with, with the band, which is, there's a thing I call the power of eight o'clock. Yeah. The power of eight o'clock is this. If you know you have to be on it, you're going to be on a stage at eight o'clock tonight. If you know that, right? When you wake up in the morning, and if the last thing you want to do that night, you don't feel like doing it that day. You know that eight o'clock is looming, and you've got to you've got to pull yourself together into what you know. I'm trying not to use the cliche, the best version of yourself. (laughs) What I mean, that's essentially what I mean. You have to pull yourself together and focus what it is you you wish to convey or what 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 the emotional connection is you want to make with people and trying to do that with a computer can be difficult here's stefan macchio talking about how the release plan of tales of solace changed because of the pandemic before like when i was setting out to record this album i was looking forward to touring the world that's what i wanted to kind of get back into you know kind of getting into a not stadium uh per se you know intimate venues but Part of what music is all about for the youth and for people is feeling each other, our smelling each other, our sweat, you know, at a rock concert. It's part of what being a teenager, it's part of what rock and roll is all about. And even if it's not rock and roll, if it's classical music, orchestras are, I'm concerned for the future of orchestras. I mean, you know, there's a lot of orchestras that are won't be performing for another year to two years, realistically. Um, and I'm talking about the world-class orchestras. So... Um, you know, how are we going to survive this is, is, is a question. Um, you know, it's been interesting performing live and we're, and it's going to force us to come up with real creative ways. And, and I love that element of it, but I am concerned for the, the robotic element that could come over time of not being near one another mm-hmm. and not being, we're humans. And, um, and that's for me, it's driven me closer to a piece of wood as opposed to a synthesizer because, that's I, you know that's what the beauty of a piano is an acoustic uh, instrument for example it just reacts more authentically to your to your your playing mm-hmm. and and um, so I you know it's it's a question that we don't have a full answer to because time will tell but it there will be repercussions of not being able to go to a concert a rock concert a classical concert if this continues for two three four plus years. Um, and, and we thought we were going to get out of it early. You know, we thought it was just going to be a month or two. It was going to pass. Carnegie Hall is not booking concerts until t- 2022 now, yeah. October, 2020. That's two years from now. And, yeah. and that's, you have to accept that reality and kind of, and now, and that's our reality as artists. We have to make plans accordingly and think differently and think out of the box and, and, uh, and, and connect with our fans and connect with people. So, uh, the creativity will continue and will only get bigger and bigger and bigger and more exciting. But um, there's a human element that I'm I'm just asking myself, you know, I'm, that I'm concerned with and how that's going to um, 
what, like I said, what what are the repercussions going to be in, in a few years' time? If, if, yeah. Lawrence, did living in isolation come with any surprises uh, for you? <laughs> um, let me think about that. You know, not. <laughs> let me let me ask my dog. Hang on a second. <laughs> uh, I. I don't feel isolated. This is the, this is the, the thing. I, I spend a lot of time on my own anyway. So I, I, I've developed some of the tools, I guess, over the years to, to, to kind of cope with it. And what Stefan was referring to is that, that, of course, all those are major concerns when it comes to uh, certain, certain things that have become – not routine, but basically part of the the essence of my life. Mm-hmm. Seeing a, seeing a live audience, I've never played less than over a hundred shows a year. So seeing and with sticks over the last twenty one years, that's thousands and thousands of people just over the course of a week. So that that is odd to yeah. to not have that. But I would say that it's it's really come to my attention more than anything just how vital music is to people's lives. The messages in the what pours at me through the social media is just just how much people are missing the concert experience that Stefan was um, referring to because that is a, a visceral, physical experience that's really exhilarating, and you can't duplicate that. You cannot you cannot replicate that with with simply with technology. Um, however, uh, it, it, I'm starting. I'm trying to. Think of think of this year or two years, whatever it turns out to be, as more of a gift than a punishment in some ways. And if if I keep my mind focused there, I do better at my four thirty a.m. conference I have with myself every morning. <laughs> so there you go. You're listening to my interview with musicians Stefan Macchio and Gowan. And Stefan, for you, any surprises? Larry said it quite well. I think you know it's. Um, the surprise it, it has been a gift and 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 um if the surprises for me are, are that is that is that music has become way more cerebral and personal uh during this time um for people and and that may perhaps that's part of the reason why my, my piano music is, is is hitting a nerve with people um because we are alone more than we are having to listen to music um you know, for families, it's, it's 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 actually quite a beautiful thing. You know, we're perhaps spending a lot more time together. It feels like a long holiday as opposed to just um, to being in quarantine. But um, it, you know, I'm 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 gauging this daily, and um, it, it's well, if anything is done for me, it's it's made specific types of music. I got to be careful in how I phrase this, but I'm a I'm a classical musician who happens to have produced some big pop songs, but I don't have the same passion for pop music right now and and that may be because um it's just there's a there it's not relevant to me uh, and pop music can't be relevant unless you're you're pop culture you're with people in an environment at a club um dancing feeling hearing each other so all of a sudden um it's doesn't become music of our times. Mm-hmm. Pop music will come become famous again, and but uh, I, and it's it's just it's just an observation that I have, uh, having been in that world. But you know, I've been invited to collaborate with some of the biggest artists on via Zoom, and I've done a few sessions, and it's interesting. But 
I, I can't say that I'm a fan of it because part of the collaborative process is being in the room with that person and just you get to a deeper level when you are face to face. And I come, yeah. coming back to just the screen time. I mean, I have children as well. And I, and I see them, you know, I see my nine year old boy who's, you know, here in Los Angeles on Zoom for eight hours a day. I mean, that's their mm-hmm. Zoom fatigue. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a situation that we, we're navigating because we've never had to deal with it. But it, again, will have effects. Um, I'm not saying it's, you know, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but it's just, it's going to change us. It's, uh, you know, this is, this COVID has drawn the line. It's, there's, that was before COVID, now it, and after COVID, and it'll be interesting yeah. to see how we come out. When we do come out as a society, I will say, I believe it's going to be one of the most exhilarating, exalting experiences <laughs> as, as a collective, as people. And when we know that we can kind of come back together in, in, in stadiums, it's going to be a beautiful thing. We have to yeah. leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Ah. Great to see you both. An absolute pleasure, Richard. Um, Great, great topic there. We're out of time because it's getting interesting now. (laughs) I know. I know. Well, we'll we'll have to Zoom one another and we can continue the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. Right now. (laughs) (laughs) Those guys were so much fun to talk to and, and quite inspiring, too, I thought. That was Stefan Macchio. He's a Grammy winner, an Oscar-nominated composer, and his new album is called Tales of Solace, and it will help you relax during these troubled times. Joining him was Gowan, lead vocalist and keyboardist of the band Styx. My thanks to both of them, as well as a huge thanks to Peter Frampton. What a treat to talk to him. Check out his new book, Do You Feel Like I Do? A Memoir. It's available now wherever you buy fine books. But as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk again soon.